1: Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Brickenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR.
2: Welcome back. Rob Rickenridge with you here on this Monday afternoon. If you happen to have uh, been by the uh, Calgary International Airport or the Edmonton International Airport today, you might have seen some protests happening. And that's because today is the international day to end the live export of animals an attempt to, to draw attention to this cause, in particular when it pertains to horses. It's not necessarily a conversation about horse meat, because certainly horses are consumed in, in many parts of the world. But ultimately, this is really more about the conditions under which horses are being shipped abroad. Since 2013, more than 30,000 Canadian horses have been sent overseas to Asia as live exports. So part of this campaign is about drawing attention to the conditions under which these horses are being exported and the kind of stress and and really, in some cases, torture this means to these animals. Now, you can read more about this campaign at CanadianHorseDefenseCoalition.org. Also, the website, and I'm going to say this in a radio-friendly way, it'll get you there the same way, HorsesHit.ca. Now, there's a different way to pronounce when those two words are mushed together. I'll say it HorsesHit.ca. So joining us to talk more about this campaign here this afternoon, uh, we have a couple of guests. Uh, joining us on the line is uh, Seneca Crossland, uh, president of the Canadian Horse Defense Coalition. Seneca, thanks for joining us here this afternoon.
3: Well, thank you for having me.
2: Uh, and also joining us here today and lending her support to this campaign is Canadian Music Hall of Fame inductee, award-winning singer-songwriter, the one and only Jan Arden. Jan, great to have you with us here today. Welcome hey, to the program.
4: Hey, glad to be here. Thanks.
2: Well and and let me start with you though, Seneca. Talk a bit more about, you know, the the international day to end the live export of animals and, and why this campaign is so important.
3: um, Yes, Canadian Horse Defence Coalition, uh, we're taking part in this campaign. Um, It's so important when you think of animals uh, being transported um, over long, long, long distances. Uh, Deaths occur, lots and lots of deaths. Um, As far as um, our own own part of the campaign goes, um, we're focused on horses, and as you were mentioning, horses are are shipped, live shipped uh, to Japan for slaughter.
2: Jan, what got you uh, interested and involved in this yourself?
4: Um, I've been involved with horses probably the last, uh, gosh, almost two decades. A very dear friend of mine, and certainly a friend to the Canadian Horse Coalition, Defense Coalition, Judith sampson French, has been my vet for 25 years, and uh, she's an amazing advocate for animal welfare. She's like Jan, not only, you know, we were, we were working with the wildies, which is the wild horses sort of on the eastern slopes of Alberta. Uh, the Alberta government was culling them every, every year, but they're being culled, you know, right across the country, depending on where you work. Anyway, that led me to the live export of the horses. And this was about two and a half years ago. And I basically, like, 99% of the people that have gotten involved with our campaign over the last year and a half, you're like, they're what? She said they they fly horses, large horses, in wooden crates, in planes uh, for up to two days because the journey is very long from feedlot to the holding pens, to not not even the holding, to the crates at the airport, to often long waits on the tarmac with, you know, whatever could happen with the flights, to the 13, 14-hour flight, and then to the disembarkment at the other end, um, well into the 30-hour period. Uh, no food, no water, no headroom. Uh, these horses often fall even on takeoff. So imagine falling over on each other because they're horses. They're not warned by the pilot to put on seatbelts. Anyway, it is a debacle. And of course, I rolled my sleeves up. Uh, I am I am a proud Albertan. And uh, this is a province that rests much of its Tried its Western heritage on the back of a horse. The Calgary Stampede is, in its entirety, focused around the horsemen, the the Western way of life. And this is a betrayal and a travesty that has been, you know, put onto these these innocent beings. They have absolutely no lives, Rob.
2: Well, yeah, it's about humane treatment of animals, and that's definitely the Alberta tradition, even if we're talking about animals that that are destined for slaughter. And I think, Seneca, that a lot of people don't realize the extent to which this is happening. But help us understand, I mean, obviously it's possible to, to slaughter animals here and then ship the meat abroad. Why are horses being exported while they're alive?
3: Well, uh they're uh they want uh, fresh horse meat over there in Japan, and so they slaughter them over there. Um, they prefer that to the they do take frozen uh horse meat as well from Canada, but uh, they they do pre- uh prefer the fresh. It's uh it's served as basashi, which is like a horse sushi in high-end uh, Japanese restaurants, and it's very expensive, uh, I understand about $20 a, a plate uh for this. And uh so yeah, uh, that's uh, horses here in Canada are the pr- purpose bred for this um, uh, trade, and they're bred like cattle and shipped abroad um, on these long, long flights.
2: And Is it possible to to adjust the rules in terms of how they're shipped or how many horses can be shipped at one time or access to water? Rob, uh, that's not just... even
4: our issue. Like honestly, like when you start getting into a conversation like that, it's it's yeah. kind of appalling because it, we just want this stopped completely. There is no way a horse that is a flight animal crammed into a crate, denied food and water, comfort of any kind, headrooms. You know what happens to a horse when they can't lift their head? They have netting. And sometimes it's a hard feeling that they can't lift their heads up. It causes them so much terror. Um, mm-hmm you know the first few flights that went out of this country in the early 2000 2006 2007 they hired fedex fedex said this is way beyond anything that is even in our wheelhouse it's too inhumane we want nothing to do with it they went to different carriers korean air is the main character this is all done in the cloak of darkness this is nothing that is part of the gross national product of canada this is a handful of guys that are quietly making between 10, 11, 12, and some years, $25 million. It is not putting food on on the tables of hardworking Canadians, and it's not even feeding hardworking Asian people. It's extremely expensive. It's a niche market. They want the big horses because of the musculature. But, you know, getting them there, they're often found dead in the crates when they get there. There's a lot of injuries. It's extremely clandestine. They don't want us being involved. Um, you know, and, and further to that, you're looking at these horses that are raised in, in feedlots. They're fed a slush twice a day. They are filthy. They, they have so many injuries. Their hooves are not tended to. They don't have veterinary care really of any kind. It's an absolute travesty, and it is a very sinister part of Canadian agriculture that needs to end, and that's it. There's no way of flying a frickin' horse, from anywhere to anywhere. I don't care if it's from Calgary to Vancouver. Have you ever heard of, like, the jumping horses, these world-class $500,000 horses? The treatment that they get, the care, the, the veterinary care. One horse in a crate, you know, with lots of food and water and comfort. and, and But yet these horses are treated like uh, just dirt.
2: Yeah. Well and, and yeah, Jan you make the point well. Uh Seneca, I mean to that, you know, this this isn't something can be that can be fixed, right? I mean this this is a practice just really beyond redemption.
3: Yes, I I, I agree. We we just uh we just have to end it. Um as Jan says. Um there's no way to make it humane this kind of, uh, and, and you talk about slaughter at the other end, uh, this is a point i like to make as well, is that um, we know what slaughter is like in Canadian equine slaughterhouses. We've watched the, the video, uh, and it's not pretty. Um, it's, it's terrible, hard to watch. And so here these horses are being flown uh, across to the other side of the world. Uh, we're, you know, sending them over there. We don't know what's going to happen to them. Um, they're totally at the mercy of the laws or the, the lack of laws over there, um, at at the other end so yeah that's another another
2: point so this all falls under the purview then of of the federal government right so who ultimately has the responsibility here and and who needs to hear this
3: the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, they, they look after this industry, and uh, we have been sending emails uh, and letters to um, our agriculture minister, uh, and we ask people to contact their members of parliament uh, to talk to, to them, uh, get them on side to, to end this trade.
2: And, Jen, you know, as mentioned, I mean, you're you're lending your platform to all of this and uh, helping to raise awareness and, and to raise some funds for this campaign as well. But you alluded to it earlier. I mean, when you talk to people about this, when you bring this up. Most people aren't aware of this, are they? This is no, something that has sure. been a well-guarded secret. Yeah,
4: yeah it, it is very, very clandestine. We have uh, Seneca and, and so many other of these amazing people that have been working with the Canadian Horse Defense Coalition since 2006. You have to keep in mind this has been banned in the United States of America. So now we're getting 100, uh, up to 125,000 horses a year that come up from the American uh, you know from the from the border because they have they've banned out slaughter and they've banned our uh, live export there so all the horses come up here and i think often canadians have this idea of themselves certainly in the agricultural sector that we do everything so much better than everyone else canada is at the low end of the totem pole with the g7 and there's a lot of going on with the g7 right now because they're all meeting and so this is a time when there's a real focus on you know, what happened globally with the pandemic? Do you think this is a time in history when we should still be shipping animals around the world in light of COVID? We still don't understand how viruses jump from animals into the human population and how they're infecting us. But if there was ever a time to stop live export, to take a look at what we're doing, it's not only unnatural, but it's, it's, it's completely unacceptable. Um, you know, in, in live export, especially large numbers of animals, when you think of, you know, sheep coming up from, you know, the southern hemisphere going to the Middle East. Do you know that 25 or 30 percent of deaths on those ships are an acceptable loss? They throw them overboard and they cut their ears off so that no one finds the tags and knows the origin of the ship that they've come from. So... What Sinek and I and, and our entire group have been pounding this. This is a very small part of Canadian agriculture. It's four or five guys that own these companies that are making this money and they're laughing all the way to the bank. And I think outwardly how this looks to Canadians and how it represents Canadian agriculture is not good for any of us. It's not good business. Um, You know, when you go, when you go bear witness at the airport and you see everything wrapped basically in bubble wrap, you can only see through small cracks. And these horses are hysterical. They're upset. They're kicking. They're screaming. They're, you know, they're sounds that I will never unhear as long as I live. And it just needs to come to an end. If people sign this petition, and I know they're a pain in the butt, we are inundated with petitions in social media now, um, but signing this, because it's sponsored by Nathaniel Erskine, this can actually have a chance to get onto the House floor and for our government. And like you said, Rob, you know how do we stop this? You stop it by caring. You stop it through compassion and kindness. And apathy is, is really killing us all. Um, and, and I want to stress again, we're not telling people what to eat. We know that that's what happens in the world. But how we treat these animals... And shipping them like literally halfway around the world is something Canada need not do.
2: Yeah, 100%. Uh, CanadianHorseDefenseCoalition.org, much more there, including the petition. Jan Arden, Seneca Crossland, uh, thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it.
4: Thank you very Thank much you.
2: for your time. Thanks, All right. All the best to you both. Thanks again. Uh, so, yes, that is uh, Jan Arden, Canadian uh, singer-songwriter, inductee into the Canadian Music Hall of Fame, is lending her voice, her platform to this campaign. Uh, Seneca Crossland is president of the Canadian Horse Defense Coalition. So there is the campaign set up for this. Which, as I mentioned earlier, it's a little awkward for me to promote on the air, but horses H I T dot C A. So you could read that as horses hit. You could also read it another way, which is the way it's intended to read. That the live export from horses of Can the live export of horses from Canada, they say, is well you can figure it out. So horseshit.ca is uh, the way I'll describe it to you, and that'll get you there. So uh, much more of that website. So again, they're saying, look, this isn't about telling people what to eat. This isn't about saying don't eat horses or be a vegan or anything like this. This is about the humane treatment of animals, and the live export of these horses is the exact opposite of that. And it's, it's a really small portion of, of the, the agriculture industry. It's a practice that's banned in the United States. It's a rather exclusive practice here in Canada. Welcome back, Rob Breckinridge, with you on the Corus Radio Network. Okay, look, I mean, you know, we have very good vaccines available uh, to deal with this virus, SARS-CoV-2. This virus, as it's uh, continued to uh, replicate itself around the world, has along the way produced some variants. Variants of concern are the ones we're worried about. Now, so far, we don't have a variant of concern that can defeat our vaccines. And that's the good news. And that's the important takeaway here. Now, obviously, there are different things that vaccines can do. We can aim for, hope for what we would call sterilized immunity, where we basically shut down the virus altogether. People who are immunized don't get it. They're not spreading it. That's it. And to look, earlier on, I mean, certainly some of the data out of Israel looked really encouraging on that point, that maybe the Pfizer vaccine, for example, was close to 90% effective in reducing transmission. But overall, the vaccines we have when it comes to preventing severe outcomes, preventing hospitalizations, preventing death, those numbers are really, really good. And so far, that remains the case from what we know about the so-called Delta variant, which first emerged in the UK, has become uh, dominant, or first emerged in India, rather, has become dominant in the UK. And in fact, the data out of the UK and what Public Health England is releasing has really helped us better understand transmissibility, virulence, and immune escape. As we've learned, first dose protection against this variant is substantially reduced. Complete vaccination protection is somewhat reduced. Numbers out of uh, the UK would put, uh, for example, the Pfizer vaccine around 80 percent efficacy, AstraZeneca at around 60 percent. Both are still really good numbers, but it reminds us that we're going to see breakthrough infections. We've got a situation unfolding, an outbreak at the Foothills Medical Center in Calgary, an outbreak that is of this Delta variant strain, and so that's concerning in it of itself. But the Chief Medical Officer of Health confirmed yesterday that 10 of those who have tested positive in that outbreak did have both doses of vaccine. Now, we don't know whether these are health workers, or patients, or which vaccine they received or when they received it. So, a lot of questions. But joining us uh, to talk a bit more about what this might all portend in terms of the threat posed by this variant and what it means for Alberta going forward, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, infectious disease specialist Dr. Lenora Saxinger, associate professor uh, in the Division of Infectious Diseases, the Department of Medicine at the University of Alberta. Dr. Saxinger, thanks for making some time for us here. Welcome to the program.
5: Thanks for having me.
2: I mean, look, it's a concerning development. It was a little odd that, that it was um, information conveyed in response to a reporter's question. And we, we do still, have, I think, have a lot of questions. What, what stands out to you about what we know and don't know at this point?
5: Well, as you were saying, I think that really the big question focuses on um, the the individuals who are said to have gotten infected with the Delta variant after two doses of vaccine because the questions that immediately spring to my mind are, you know, how recently were they vaccinated because we know that full protection takes a period of time, were these people who we would expect to have a full vaccine response or because this is a hospital setting and people in hospitals are not necessarily representative of everyone outside hospitals. Was there a possibility that some of those people might not have had a full response to their vaccination because they were frail or had immune-compromising conditions? And all those things, I think, will come to light with the investigation. So the the initial um, reveal, I guess, was was probably because they were maybe hoping to have more information at the time that they made announcements about it. But on the other hand, I mean, it's a big deal. It is something that people are paying attention to.
2: Yeah, and I mean, in terms of how big a deal, that depends, as you say, on the answers to a lot of those questions. So there, there are ways, I think, that we could better understand that would be less concerning. Look, obviously we're talking about fully vaccinated healthcare workers who would have been wearing PPE. And, you know, if you had a fully vaccinated doctor, pass it to another fully vaccinated doctor. Those are the kinds of things that would be a lot more worrisome, right?
5: Oh, absolutely. And I mean, those are exactly the kinds of things I think that have people kind of nervous. But if you look at the most recent UK numbers, although this variant definitely is a variant of real concern with really high transmissibility um, and, and lots of household spread, um, it doesn't look like it's actually causing, you know, more hospital based outbreaks. It looks like all the usual infection control things done well are able to contain it. And so I'm kind of, you know, holding on to that as we learn more because I, I don't think that it really serves anyone to, to panic unnecessarily. But if there's time for panic, then by all means let's do it
2: yeah and i think we need to know more about all of this um and, and again as i mentioned at the outset i mean we we do know that there's a slightly reduced vaccine efficacy here that that we are going to see breakthrough cases breakthrough infections as they're referred to so you know we we should expect that right and we we shouldn't overreact whenever we do hear of those cases
5: absolutely and i mean i i think the other thing is you know we we will learn more but the general experience is that cases that occur after vaccination usually are, you know, very unlikely to be severe, and so it's not it's not a you know issue of throwing up your hands and saying, well, there's no point. The vaccines don't work against the variants we're doomed. It's really okay. We got to focus in on doing everything really perfectly. People should run, not walk, to get their first dose, and they should book their second dose as soon as possible, because it does provide very significant protection, and it actually will increase our kind of community resilience against new variants like this.
2: That's right. I mean, look, obviously, I mean, if we could aspire for complete and total, um, you know, sterilized immunity, then then sure, that would be great. But that doesn't mean that anything short of that is a failure, right? I mean, it's, it's there's still great value in having vaccines that can uh, substantially reduce severe outcomes, substantially reduce hospitalizations, substantially reduce deaths.
5: Well, you know, the initial modeling on vaccines, I remember from early in the pandemic, they were basically saying, vaccines with at least 50% efficacy would be required in order to help us end the pandemic. And so then we got kind of spoiled with these vaccines coming out with these astronomical 90-plus efficacy numbers. But let's not forget that, actually, you know, we were willing to accept 50%, and that made a big difference when you actually work out what you'd expect with a global pandemic. And so I do think that, yeah, we have to kind of focus on on the good parts of the vaccine as well, for sure.
2: Uh, you know, I mean, it's it's maybe early on, but I, I suppose there is the question as to, you know, whether boosters are, are going to be needed at some point, And maybe we're we're leaning a little more toward probably at this point. What's your sense?
5: Oh, I think so. I mean, like, there, there's actually a fair amount of work right now going on trying to look ahead and kind of pre-design vaccines for potential variants, like with the mutations that are common across um, currently concerning variants. To basically kind of give us a a planned booster approach already and I think that that's going to end up being something that will be important to try to stay a step ahead as we try to get more global immunization going to reduce the risk of new variants emerging. It will need some time for that and so I think that there will be boosters, yes.
2: I mean, you know, not to be overconfident suggests that, you know, this virus is reaching the end of its bag of tricks. We we do see, I, I don't know, are they, they predictable patterns? I mean, there, there seem to be certain clear mutations that do convey advantages to this virus. What, what are we learning about it on that side?
5: Yeah, it's interesting to see that viruses arising in different places have some common themes. And so to me, the common themes are like, oh, that's a bad sign when you see it. But on the other hand, it's a good sign because it means that, okay, we're getting a sense of how this is going to go. We're able to start, like I said, pre-developing um, vaccines that will be useful against what we anticipate might, might happen. By we, I mean scientists. I'm not that smart. And I, think that, uh, and, I, and I think that, yeah, it's kind of a strategic phase right now. It's like the virus makes a move, we make a move. Um, it's certainly not, I, I don't think that it means that we're not going to win. I just think that we have to get really serious about how we're managing everything.
2: Yeah, and I mean, you know, the thing is, and you know, we, we sort of lost that race against what we now call the Alpha variant, the B one one seven. It got here and it it became dominant. We're on a bit of a knife's edge, I guess, at the moment. Where you know, overall, the the, the COVID numbers in Alberta are going in the right direction. Um, you know, we're we're increasing the ranks of the vaccinated every day. Uh, are we in a slightly better position, maybe, this time around?
5: Oh, I think that, you know, having this variant emerge now against the background of immunizations as we've been, you know, have been really very successful here and the pace here has been very good. I'm very impressed. I mean, having it arise now is a very different story than it would have been back when B117 was coming forward. So I think the main thing is just not to get cocky because it is a bad variant and I take it very, very seriously. But I, I don't think that we need any different tools than the ones that we already have and the things that we know to be able to get ahead of it. It just kind of requires the concerted will of everyone to do the right thing.
2: Yeah, well said. We'll leave it there. I uh, always appreciate the insight. Dr. Saxinger, thanks for joining us here this afternoon.
5: My pleasure, thank you.
2: All the best. Uh, Dr. Lenora Saxinger, University of Alberta Infectious Disease Specialist, Associate Professor in the Department of Medicine at the Division of Infectious Diseases. So, yeah, I mean, it's not the kind of thing you, you hope to hear, or you much rather hear about an outbreak uh, somewhere and, you know, all the vaccinated people were fine and, you know, it's just the unvaccinated. So, yeah, that, that number 10 was did jump out, I got to admit. So we do need to learn more. And, you know, perhaps, as she said, we can give Dr. Hinshaw the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they're in the process of gathering more of that information. So when they were going to release it, they would be able to to lay it all out. And so she answered the question, honestly, I think it was Lauren Pullen uh, from Global News who said, you know, regarding that situation of the foothills, and we have X number of cases, I think it's up to 30 or so now, how many of those individuals were vaccinated? And she gave, you know, the uh, answer as she best understood it at that point. So more information will help fill in some of these blanks here. But some, you know, we're still left with that conclusion that obviously this outbreak did include some vaccinated individuals. They did test positive, you know, if they're asymptomatic or close to asymptomatic, then obviously, yeah, okay, that's, that's still a positive, right? And we do know, I mean, we see the numbers from the UK, and they've been really diligent in tracking cases, tracking hospitalizations, tracking deaths. I think they've had, in total, about 126 deaths now linked to this uh, Delta variant in the UK, the latest numbers I saw this week. Three of those individuals had had both vaccine doses, so, yeah, you'll see cases and, and, you know, in more rare instances, you'll see some severe outcomes. But, you know, we still have very good tools and let's not lose sight of that. So I'm not trying to be too much of a downer, but I think as Dr. Saxinger said, let's not get too cocky either. You know, let's, let's respect this virus, something Dr. Hinch often says, and respect what it can be capable of. This Delta variant poses a challenge. No doubt it's more transmissible seems more likely to produce some more serious outcomes. And it has that, more of that degree of, of immune escape. So we can recognize that, but we're doing the right thing here. We're ramping up uh, the vaccine rollout, We're uh, speeding up, accelerating, opening up second doses. And, uh, you know, every, every day that goes by, we're, we're building up that protection. So hopefully, you know, we can build up enough of a wall. Off the top in this hour, some interesting developments regarding the situation of uh, this uh, young man who's been charged in connection with this horrific attack in London, Ontario, just over a week ago. A uh, family of five, according to police, deliberately hit with uh, a pickup truck. Of course, four members of that family died. Uh, the fifth, a nine-year-old boy, was hospitalized with injuries. That boy, of course, lost parents, sister and a grandparent in this attack. So the suspect answering to those charges in court today and now a new charge has been laid against 20 year old Nathaniel Veltman, a charge of terrorism. And there's been a lot of conversation recently about whether that word should apply here. You know, there's a different kind of standard, I think, in how we choose to use the word versus what the law says and the specifics of the charge. So this is indeed a major development today. So joining us to talk about uh, all that's transpired here today regarding this case and the investigation, Stuart Bell. is following it all. He's a national online investigative journalist with Global News, globalnews.ca. Stuart, thank you for making some time for us here today. Welcome to the program.
0: Good afternoon, Rob.
2: So it was, I mean, I guess a virtual court appearance. That's typically how things are being done today. But what uh, what transpired today in court?
0: Well, the the federal crown uh, got involved for the first time since this arrest, and they announced uh, that in addition to the first-degree murder charges he's already facing, as well as the attempted murder charge, uh, they were adding on um, counts of terrorism for each of the victims and what the charge they've used it's called murder terrorist activity and it's basically um you know a charge that's been used increasingly in the last uh, year or so for cases where there've been attacks where people have uh, have been killed and where they believe that the motive for that was uh, was terrorism or in the words of the law it's basically um you know any kind of crime or th- 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 that they believe was committed for political religious ideological purpose objective or cause so that's it kind of separates the um, this type of a, you know violence from all the other types of violence that we see in society and it doesn't necessarily um, add anything in terms of uh, uh, You know, he's already, first-degree murder charges he's already facing would already be a life sentence. So not necessarily making things tougher on him, but uh, it seems like it's becoming um, more, I guess, I I think there's a growing recognition among the Crowns that when an act uh, of violence is believed to be um, terrorism, that it should be called and charged as such.
2: (laughs) Well, it's interesting because obviously, you know, first-degree murder implies, you know, we are getting inside the head of the suspect, right? First-degree murder means that this was planned, this was deliberate. So we have to establish that we know something about what was going on in the mind of the accused. Terrorism is interesting because this is now about really proving beyond a reasonable doubt a motive here. Uh, a a thought process, an ideology, you know, what this individual believed and how those beliefs affected what he did. Do we have any idea at this point, Stuart, that what kind of evidence we're talking about here that might point in that direction?
0: Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, a terrorism charge, uh, it implies that there's a motive um, that has to do with advancing some kind of an ideology. And uh, in this case, we just we don't really know um, what ideology they're specifically talking about, um, or even what evidence they have. I mean, his actions to some extent speaks for themselves, and you can read into them what you might. Um, we're still waiting to hear the details, um, but it is. I mean, we do know in the other cases where, uh, and there have been this is the third case now since last February where they've used this very specific charge in uh, these types of cases, and. In both of those, they were, um, the circumstances were, they sound very similar to this, in that there was an attack, there was a killing, and immediately, either immediately upon arrest or in a statement following arrest, the accused made statements that um, basically led to the charge. So there was a case last February where uh, in Toronto there was a man who walked up to a woman on a sidewalk and killed her with a hammer, And he allegedly uh, incriminated himself by saying he'd done it for the islamic state Uh, there was another case um, last may where the rcmp again used the same charge and in that case what we're told is that the um, the fellow that was arrested um, the accused also when he was arrested said basically he'd done it because of his belief in incel uh, types of ideas so uh, this may be a case also um, where the accused has made statements that have led them to understand uh that he did so for you know for whatever ideology he believed in and so yeah so it is you know that is the appropriate charge as you know i mean murders happen for all types of reasons um this is a very unique circumstance where it's done because of what the um you know the type of ideology that the accused has been following
2: (laughs) And so for now, uh, the authorities are being very tight-lipped about that evidence. So nothing has been publicly released about what they might have found or or what the accused might have said to them.
0: No, I mean, they are being very tight-lipped. They have in the past been willing to describe which ideology they're talking about, and we're working on that. Um, We haven't heard anything yet. But, you know, what's interesting here is, um, you know, we're seeing a bit of a change in the way terrorism is being uh, treated by prosecutors in Canada, you know for a long time, crowns were really hesitant to use terrorism charges in a case where there had been an attack we 've seen lots of terrorism charges in Canada, but they 've always been for plots that were disrupted, things that never happened and when once the actual attack happened, then the the prosecutors preferred just to treat it as an assault as a, a killing a murder and I think since last year there 's been a recognition that You know, it is important um, for Canadians at large to, to see that when acts of terrorism happen, they're treated as acts of terrorism, no matter what. And so there's that sort of public interest factor that's being brought into the equation when crowns are deciding which charges to lay. And we've seen that again today, I think.
2: What have you been able to to uncover so far now you you've talked to um I believe you spoke to the father of the accused, and you know there's been a lot of folks trying to to look into the accused and his background. There's no obvious trail on social media or elsewhere of any kind of extremism or or racism but what have you found so far?
0: No, you're right. I mean we've a lot of people have been looking we've been looking and there is no obvious trail um that connects us you know in a lot of these cases uh, where people are arrested like this for terrorism or acts of terrorism you uh, you just look up their social media and right away you you get a sense of where they're coming from uh, in this case, we just haven't been able to find that <clears throat> find that trail. Uh, nobody that we've spoken to in his life has been able to come up with anything, but that's not necessarily um, unusual you know we've seen in other cases in Canada and around the world where people um, have transformed very rapidly. Uh, they've gone down sort of online rabbit holes that have um, that have uh, led them to do what they've done. So you know we just don't know and, and again you know you you can read perhaps a certain amount um, just through his actions in terms of what he was perhaps thinking but who he was following you know what if there was any particular, organizations that he had uh, sort of was following or had adopted their thinking. We just don't know.
2: All right. Well, we'll continue to follow this. Uh, More details as mentioned, globalnews.ca. Stuart Bell, appreciate the update here this afternoon. Thanks for this. Thanks, sir. All right. That is uh, Stuart Bell, investigative journalist uh, with Global News, globalnews.ca. So big development today. Terrorism charges have been filed against 20-year-old Nathaniel Veltman. It's already facing first-degree murder charges and a charge of attempted murder. So here's the thing. And we've spoken about situations in the past where terrorism charges were not late. like the uh, in-cell van attack in Toronto that killed 10 people or the uh, attack in Edmonton where a police officer was run down, some other people were injured, nobody died, but a suspect who apparently had an ISIS flag in his vehicle. Terrorism charge was not late. But Stuart Bell did just point out two recent cases where a terrorism charge was late. February of last year, a Toronto woman was murdered with a hammer, allegedly by somebody who declared his support for the Islamic State. A terrorism charge was applied there. An individual attacked employees at an erotic massage parlor in Toronto. One person was killed, another injured. Uh, The alleged attacker there was charged with terrorism. So we have other examples we can point to where the charge was laid. But again, we have those high-profile examples where the charge was not. You can add to that list the attack on the Quebec mosque in 2017 that left six, six people dead. So this is something the prosecutors have to prove here. And even if the charge is not laid, we're not beholden to that in terms of whether we ourselves believe that it's terrorism. Because there was a time where that charge didn't exist, but the concept of terrorism did. So already we've had the prime minister, the premier and others refer to this as a terrorism, an act of terrorism. I don't know if that's necessarily contingent on that charge being proven in court. So at this point, as Stuart Bell laid out, the police have not really clarified what evidence they have that will back up this charge of terrorism. If indeed the suspect has laid all of this out in speaking with police, speaking with investigators, some kind of confession, then sure, that that might be a slam dunk, I suppose. But at this point, we haven't seen that, so we have no idea what this is. But obviously, they must feel that they have something there because they know full well, look, we're already asking the crown to prosecute four charges of first degree murder, to prosecute a charge of attempted murder. We all know that that would be enough to more or less keep that person in prison for the rest of his life. We're now asking them to demonstrate in court to prove a charge of terrorism. It would definitely be a bad look for the crown, uh, you know, to get guilty verdicts on some counts and then acquittals on others. You don't want to go down that path. Big announcement today from the CFL and the uh, progression of plans for the 2021 CFL season. This was CFL Commissioner Randy Ambrosi earlier today.
6: Well, to say uh, this is uh, a happy day for the CFL is a monumental understatement. Obviously, we've been all been waiting for this for a long time it's taken an awful lot of hard work to get here uh you know when when we uh, were confronted all of us not just in the football business or the media business but in all walks of life were confronted with the covid crisis in march of 2020 uh none of us would have imagined it had um, that it would have taken us on the journey that it has it obviously had uh, a significant effect on us in 2020 and uh and You know, perhaps it's best to say that uh, being disappointed in 2020 just uh, doubled and then redoubled and redoubled again our resolve to get back on the field in 2021. And, you know, it was a thrill today um, following a unanimous vote by our Board of Governors. It was a thrill to to make the announcement that we'll kick off our season on uh, August the 5th. And we'll be in Hamilton for what I think will be one of the greatest Grey Cups of all time, a truly national celebration, not just of our great game, uh, just of our great teams, not just of our great players and coaches, but just of of what everything our league has meant, what our teams have meant to their communities and what our game has meant to Canada.
2: Okay, so we are good to go. August 5th, as you just heard there from the CFL Commissioner. Mark Stephen, of course, is the longtime voice of the Calgary Stampeders right here on 770 CHQR. Joins us now for more on this announcement today. Mark, very good news. Uh, Any surprise in uh, anything you heard today, first of all?
1: No, these were largely the parameters that I'd been hearing about, a 14-game season, so it's the smallest uh, schedule for the Stampeders in their case since 1951, but that's just the way it's going to be. No training camp, so I imagine we'll have some you know, scrimmages for each of the teams, and uh, the season ends in the middle of December. We'll get a few more details, Rob, on some of the scheduling uh, things that'll go on this year, and also seating capacity, because the league has to deal with six, different jurisdictions but basically it's uh, what we were led to believe was going to happen unanimous and uh, now we can get things going Yeah, absolutely and i guess uh, we're going to get some clarification
2: in the days ahead in terms of tickets and and you know what this is going to mean for season ticket holders we might have different situations with the different teams right because these rules are going to go province to province aren't
1: they? Absolutely. There's six different jurisdictions and if I can, you know, just generalize based on what I've been hearing on your show and everything, I would say Alberta and Saskatchewan will be the first to open up. Remember, we're talking about August 5th. It's not like it's next week or anything. So by yeah. August the 5th, they'll have a seating plan in place. Exactly what that looks like. I don't know. Uh, one thing I did hear is the Ontario teams where there seems to be more lockdown fever, if it's the word, uh, more restrictions. A lot of the Ontario teams. Teams are going to play out here and that's significant I mean three of the members of the league are from Ontario then they'll go back there after a couple or three weeks uh, here so those are some of the things that we've heard of and it's in recognition of exactly what you said that Alberta and Saskatchewan will be a little more uh, you know open than the other uh, teams around the league. So we're going to get the full schedule
2: tomorrow, but as you say, obviously, there's a lot of planning that leads up to, to that first game and that first kickoff. So step one is getting everybody
1: back here. What do we know about those plans? Well, uh, players can start reporting as of about June 25th, so not that far away. There will be some quarantine for American players, and then they'll get ready to start training camp on July the 10th, so that's not too, too far away, and they'll have that three-week camp. So those are some of the steps that must be taken care of. In fact, uh, the Stampeders, and I'm sure every team in the league, is going to have a sort of health seminar with different players to get on board and tell them, what they have to do, what is expected, uh, you know, whether they're supposed to wear masks here, there, and everywhere, and some of those things to do. So those are going to be some of the topics that will be discussed over the next little while. But uh, they're getting all these protocols in place, and uh, soon they'll be uh, on the field to play an actual game. So we're expecting then training camps uh, in July. Yep, July 10th, and that's three weeks and uh, no preseason games. So that's just one thing. You know, they don't want to get the players on the field and get them knocking into each other, considering they haven't played in close to two years. So a longer training camp because these guys have to get back in uh, shape as well. I mean, obviously, they've been doing a lot of working out, but football shape and being in a gym in Florida is a whole different world. So they're going to have to sit down and uh, put together a plan, and they are right now, to make sure that the players get in shape and get ready to hit and be hit starting with training camp in uh, July.
2: Obviously, in past seasons, uh, normal seasons, you know, we'd be having uh, the, the regular season beginning pretty much right around now. So Definitely. given that we're losing the rest of June, losing all of July, is that why we got the shortened season? Is, is there just no room on the, the, um, you know, the end of the season once we get into November, December to, to push this
1: back any further? Well, not really. And that that's the reason why. Uh, December 12th would be the latest the CFL game has ever been played. They almost never play in December. And, you know, December and Hamilton, they're a little nervous about that. They didn't want to go past Christmas into 2022. So 14 games over a 16-week schedule means everybody gets a bye week, a couple of bye weeks thrown in there. So, yeah, they just wanted to, I uh, didn't want to go too deep into December because, you know, I've never been to Hamilton in December. But looking online, the weather looks like a, like here, a bit of a flip of the coin. I mean, I had somebody send me a note today. Well, why didn't they just move it to Vancouver this year? I see his point, but Hamilton's been dying for this Grey Cup. And so let's play it there. Yeah, it might be tough, but we just don't know, right? Right. And so obviously this is something the CFL and the
2: players had to agree to. Then you had to get government on board. There's been a lot that's gone into this. A shortened season is going to have some, you know, contractual implications. Was this uh, a sticking point at all between the league and the Players Association?
1: Well, I would say it was a point of discussion for sure. A lot of points of discussion. You're right, because the players are paid on a per game basis. So, and I'll just pull numbers out of the air here. You know, a guy, a veteran, he makes just over $100,000 a year. That'd be roughly $6,000 per game. So four of those checks are going to disappear, but that had to be collectively bargained. You know, the the players had to agree to it, understanding what's going on. The owners had to agree to it as well, because you know, the owners too, in many cases won't have near the revenue they have in regular years. So you're right that there was a long process. They didn't just sit down today and say, who wants to play this year? There's a lot going on. There's been a lot of negotiations on the collective agreement to modify it, and there's a few other things that are modified there, uh, You know, including some of the restrictions they may face. Uh, But on the other hand, they had to get approval from the different levels and layers of government. Uh, There's six provinces they had to work with, and Ontario being the biggest, Alberta next with uh, multiple franchises. So, yeah, there was an awful lot that went into this. It's uh, you know, a relief just to get to the start line, but plenty of work behind the scenes has been done and mapping out a schedule and a whole bunch of things like that.
2: What about some kind of training camp mark for the uh, play-by-play voices uh, of the CFL teams?
1: Oh, I've had <laughs> been a- off for for over a year. I've been working out on my own so yeah, there you good. go that's I don't good. need a I don't need a gym in Florida I just need a basement in Calgary so uh, no it'll be good 14 games uh, my understanding is uh, everybody will play everybody we're gonna get the format details tomorrow but I was wondering if maybe they'd keep the team strictly in the West and uh, have the Ontario yeah. and Quebec teams play each other no but everybody will play everybody uh, I don't know the exact details but I'm I'm certain we aren't sitting here today unless Labor Day was on the schedule and <laughs> that stadium. The I Stampeders so. would have put up a stink, but you know, 14 games and here's part of it too, Rob, is 14-game You know, you want part of winning the gray cup and the magic and the lure of it is sort of the struggle, the collective struggle you went through to fight through injuries, fight through this, fight through a different set of opponents. So it has to be a credible length of schedule. And I think by any definition, 14 of 18 is considered credible. So the, the ring when it's awarded, the cup when it's hoisted will have some validity and value.
2: Absolutely. All right, we'll get more details tomorrow as mentioned on the schedule. Details coming for season ticket holders as well. But August 5th is the kickoff of this CFL season. Looking forward to it. Mark Stephen, thank you so much for the update here today. Appreciate this.
1: Oh, yeah, thank you. It'd be So many people of uh, between fans, uh, sponsors, players, coaches, everyone. Just a huge day for everybody. Indeed it is. All right, there you go. go. Mark Stephen,
2: longtime yep. voice of the Calgary Stampeders. I'm looking forward to hear him uh, back on these airwaves calling uh, CFL games. So August 5th, so the season pushed back, 14 games so they can get the Grey Cup in in early December in Hamilton. That could be interesting, but that's part of the fun of CFL football, right? We get it all. You get the heat of summer, the, the worst of winter and uh, everything in between.